0: In this episode, I am once again joined by Professor Arthur Verschluss, Professor and Department Chair of Religious Studies in the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Author of over 25 books on subjects ranging from Western esotericism, magic, Christian theosophy, ancient mystery schools, and more. In this episode, Arthur discusses his latest book, American Gnosis, in which he explores the surprising connections between the Gnostic tradition and contemporary American spirituality, politics, and popular media. Arthur shows the ways in which Gnostic religious themes explicitly and implicitly express in political groups such as the dissident right, probes Eric Vogelin's theories, which propose links between Gnosticism and left-wing political movements, and explores the blend of cosmological and metaphysical Gnosis in the writings of David Icke. Arthur also details the key features of neo-Gnosticism, discusses the meme battles over the Matrix films Red Pill, and considers the overlaps between light work conspiracy theories, and Tibetan Buddhism. So without further ado, Professor Arthur Vershluis. Arthur Vershluis, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, I really appreciate it.
0: I'm so delighted to be talking with you again, this time about your new book, American Gnosis. Breaking new ground in many areas of scholarship, places that haven't been touched before, it's certainly not treated in this sort of a way. And I hope we'll talk about some of those areas today. Uh, but first of all well first of all actually congratulations on the publication of, of american gnosis oxford university press
1: well thank you it it was a journey uh, to get to the publication of that book because it was so much exploration you know it was years in the making and uh, uh it was a journey where the the starting point is by no means where i ended and i i think that's part of the sense that you you're referring to and your kind of overview of the book so thank you
0: how did this book come to be you said it's a journey and that's clear i think it takes i think the reader on a journey also how did you begin to get a hold on this subject how did you begin and and how did you navigate uh, that research journey and also I think we could perhaps situate this book in terms of some of your other works, too. Uh, American Gurus, which we discussed in the last episode together, or uh, Magic and Mysticism, I think also uh, is referred to a lot here. So perhaps you could situate the book more broadly in terms of your, your, your work. And also, I'm very curious indeed, from inception uh, through the journey, how, how this book came to be?
1: Yeah, well, there are two things to say in response to that. One is, that i've been working on the uh areas that are germane to this book for decades and so there are elements of this book that directly connect uh sometimes really surprisingly to something that i published 20 or more years ago Uh, and i didn't expect that and and so in some sense the book comes out of all of these prior uh uh, books and themes and subjects and areas of exploration at the same time when i started it i had a plan which i proposed to oxford some years ago and the plan went entirely out the window uh because as i was writing then and discovering things then uh the way that it developed uh was really surprising, and I didn't expect some of these things. I didn't ex- some of them I expected because I knew, for example, about Miguel Serrano. Uh, I knew about uh, uh, Samuel Almuer. The uh, so I I knew about these different figures. Charles Musès I actually knew about when I was writing about Christian theosophy decades ago because he had published a book on that but once you get into it it's quite surprising and uh uh it was like day after day you know finding new things and then having to process what is the significance of this right because that's another aspect of it it's not just that you discover this or that figure it's making sense of it making How do you, how do you place this? How do you, how do you understand it? And so that's an element of the journey, and I'm taking the reader along with me on that journey, uh, because it's, it is the case that I work through primary texts, and I'm working through sources, and that means I'm working through them, trying to understand in the modern world, how does neo-gnosticism function? How do, how do we how do we understand this because it's obviously a presence and I have a story for you about that uh something that happened quite recently that that il- illustrates how it's the case that this is this these themes are present in society in ways that are completely unexpected and here I'm talking about neo-gnosticism not Gnosis as such and I make a distinction between those which I think is valid So those are the two things i would say and so the story you have for us
0: is the story of the book is that is that what you're referring to
1: no it's an anecdote that illustrates how these themes are present in society and and that anecdote is this Uh, a few days ago i was in i was uh i had to take take my car i took my car in and i had i was in a shop and I was talking, you know, talking to the mechanic, the guy who's who's working on it, you know, we were walking through the shop to the car, which was finished, and uh, he said, well, you know, there's a herd mentality in society, and he gave me a social science example of it, he said, he said, uh, this, uh, these folks painted a white line in a mall, and everybody followed the white line to nowhere, except one or two people. And he said, one or two people didn't follow the white line, right? This is, this is, and now this is a mechanic in a shop telling me this story. And then he said, what people don't really, he looked at me in the eyes and he said, what people don't realize is that this world is ruled by the little God. He said, the elite are under the service of the little God and the little God is deceiving them. Now, that what I just told you actually happened okay what is he saying in this in this story what is he saying well what he's saying is this is the Demiurge we are under the sway of the Demiurge a false a false deluded creator deity okay now this is the guy who worked on an exhaust system on my car So what I'm saying is that these themes are present in society in ways that are totally unexpected. So anyway, I had to pass that story along. That's that's an example of um, how deeply how present these are these themes are.
0: That's amazing. That sounds exactly like the sort of thing someone might say
1: in Twin Peaks. Yes, it's the same feeling. It's just like that, where it's so surreal as an exchange that i you know i was just looking at him processing it as he was saying it thinking is this real like you know which is the same feeling you have watching twin twin peaks especially uh twin peaks the return which is so surreal uh and this episode happened a couple of days ago yeah that is fascinating
0: and i'd love to trace with you, how it is that we've arrived at this sort of a twin peaks moment, actually. Before we do, you make an important point about definitions, early on in the book. The definitions we've talked so far about Gnosticism, you've mentioned that word, neo-Gnosticism. That's a a difference we should parse. You've also talked about Gnosis. And the difference in the book, You, you write about the difference between cosmological and metaphysical Gnosis. I think we should parse all of these of these terms, these are crucial. But you've also written that you found it necessary to broaden the definitions here, and in fact much of what you discovered pressed at the at the limits of these definitions. To quote the book here, American Gnosis, be aware from the beginning that we will have to expand our definitions and uses of such terms, like Gnosis and Awakening, beyond their conventional religious studies significations. I find it necessary to develop more flexible and expansive ways of understanding our subject matter, which is not limited to religion as such, but ranges widely, and including, for instance, politics, technology, society, and media, indeed virtually the whole of contemporary global society. So perhaps we could start at the religious studies level of definitions. Gnosis, Gnosticism. What do we mean by these? And how have you found those definitions challenged or needing to be expanded in your research journey?
1: Well, Gnosticism as as, uh, conjuries of of, um, figures and groups in the early Christian era is uh, an alternative way of understanding Christianity that developed, you know, early in the Christian period. And includes a whole series of different uh, themes or different uh, what uh, Chulianu the Ion Chulianu the uh, Romanian scholar of religion who uh, taught at the University of Chicago suggested that there are what are called building blocks and Nasticism in the early period can be understood as having certain building blocks. Um, And you see this and you see this to some extent in uh, alternative uh, scriptures that you find in a collection called the Nag Hammadi Library. Uh, But what I discovered was that the building blocks that you can find, you can see these elements in the Nag Hammadi Library, for example, uh, Gnosis, the idea of direct spiritual experience is there in the Gospel of Thomas uh the idea of demiurge uh false a deluded creator that thinks he's god but is not really god uh the and then there's the idea of a true god or a hidden god Uh, the idea of archons or spiritual powers that are sometimes hostile uh to human spiritual progress these themes are are there in in this early christian period Uh, You see them in the Gospel of Philip, some of them, for example, Uh, and you see the figure, female divine figure in uh, Thunder Perfect Mind. So all these themes exist, but what uh, you find in the modern period in the 20th century is that these themes get extracted, and with a figure like Hans Jonas, they they get generated into a 20th century interpretation of Gnosticism that becomes dominant it it comes out into becomes popular it become it merges into popular society to a a much broader degree and you see these elements starting to appear in uh, American films you start seeing it in American literature but it's not Gnosticism from this early period it's the themes the building blocks that I mentioned that start to reappear so you see the idea of a false creator God in movies you start to see themes of hostile Archons you start to see the the theme of uh, Divine Feminine all these different aspects start to reappear You could say almost spontaneously and individually. So it's not that they're that people are necessarily consciously replicating ancient Gnosticism. It's that a new phenomenon begins to develop in the 20th and 21st century, which I call neo-Gnosticism. And like the this this gentleman in the auto shop that I mentioned, he's not. He's not a scholar of ancient Gnosticism. He's not reading the Nagamadi Library. Where did he pick up on this? I don't know. But for sure, these themes are out there in social media, and I show that in the book. So that's one thing to say, is that there's a difference between what I call neo-Gnosticism, which is the reemergence of these themes in contemporary society, how that happens, there's a variety of ways, and then secondly, there's a difference between what I call cosmological gnosis and metaphysical gnosis. And cosmological gnosis has to do with this, world, you could say, this worldly thing. So for example, politics is this worldly. Politics, political gnosis fits broadly under cosmological in the sense that it's concerned with this worldly things. Uh, metaphysical gnosis is what you see for example when the word gnosis is used in tibetan translations of tibetan buddhist works that is the purest i would say pure form of meta what i'm terming here metaphysical gnosis so gnosis in this case is not political it's not it is purely trans essentially essentially transcendent uh in a way that you see you could encapsulate in for example the uh, heart of wisdom Sutra uh, but which you also find in Western texts so for example you look at a figure like Dionysus the Areopagite classical Christian mysticism very similar to what you find also in Tibetan Buddhism and that essentially is uh, in the case of Dionysus the Areopagite in his mystical theology he says, it is not seeing, it is not hearing, it is not from tasting, it is not from, it's not uh, conceptual, it's not. So it, this whole series of negations characterizes what I'm terming metaphysical gnosis. And so there are two aspects, two kind of sets of themes in the book, and those, uh, those two classes, you could say, of knowledge and cosmological knowledge is fundamentally very different than metaphysical Gnosis. And these two categories recur all the way through the book. And I think they're important to understand because they help us uh, see how when you find uh, these themes of, of Demiurge or Archons or uh being trapped in a hostile society those themes are not the same as metaphysical gnosis they're separate largely not completely but largely and so there's so many different aspects to what we're looking at in the book that it's um uh, uh really worthwhile to think through and understand these these conceptual distinctions
0: yes I'd like to return to these Bricks of Gnosticism, the 10 bricks of Gnosticism, as Kuliano put it. But first, you recount the anecdote of L, a woman you had a conversation with who told you she had had an awakening. And this, I think, really strikes to the difference between the cosmological and metaphysical gnosis. What does awakening mean? Your mind, you write, went straight away, of course, to well, awakening. Well, sort of people get awakened, they're Buddhas, they become Buddhas, right? You you thought right away of that metaphysical type of Gnosis. But that was not, in fact, what Elle was talking about. To quote American Gnosis here, Ella sees a narrative completely different than the one conveyed in mainstream media. For her, Donald Trump is not a politician, but an heroic figure, who, while of course a human being with his own quirks or foibles, has nonetheless chosen to serve as a vehicle for the powers of good and light and liberty. He and the powers of light are being oppressed by the powers of darkness, the archons, as represented by the deep state, and utterly corrupt political figures who have, in essence, sold their souls to the mercenary devil. Her narrative is implicitly neo-gnostic, or to put it another way, very closely resembling contemporary popular forms of neo-gnosticism. So I wonder if you might talk about this term awakening uh, and, and parse that in this difference between metaphysical and cosmological awakening and why this was so surprising to you to hear her talk in these terms
1: well when someone says I'm uh I'm awakened uh I've I've had this Enlightenment experience you think Enlightenment you know that's that's my natural I think I'm I thought she was uh was referring to Awakening in a Buddhist sense and uh, somebody that's awakened is a Buddha as, exactly as you say. But that wasn't what she was talking about at all, really. Uh, it was really a narrative about uh, what's happening in society. It's essentially a political, social narrative, and the awakening is awakening to a hidden to hidden dimensions of political social reality. And this is definitely cosmological. There's a, from this side, there's, from this point of view, there's this cosmological awakening that's happening. And uh, she's she's awoke. She awoke to this uh, reality of a battle between light and darkness. And it really didn't have that narrative that she told me. really doesn't have anything to do with awakening in the buddhist sense at all that's why i say in the book there's neo-gnosticism without gnosis and then there's gnosis without neo-gnosticism and that's really true in the book and so she's an example of neo-gnostic thinking not in the sense that she is explicitly gnostic but that neo-gnostic bricks or elements are present in her way of seeing the world so this worldview is neo-gnostic in this uh sort of uh Giuliano sense of these different out al- not neo-gnostic elements she sees a battle between light and darkness she is awakened to the reality to the hidden things that are happening in society and those are political but they're actually spiritual uh this is neo-gnostic and uh it's neonastic in this in this sense and it has nothing to do with Gnosis or Awakening in, in the Buddhist context or little I would say little I won't say nothing because I think there is a there are links you could say or there is crossover but it's not that much
0: right what is the little crossover that that you can see
1: well that there is this uh there are these uh themes that you see in some of these figures so for example uh I talk about uh Stephen Huller and I talk about the uh neo-gnostic the Gnostic church that he's developed and his his life story and uh his life story uh he's a founder of American Gnostic church in California and author of many books on Gnosticism and his life story is that he left behind uh communism in a communist worldview and moved into Gnostic into a Gnostic worldview and so there are there are some themes in his work that are uh very similar to what you see in Uh, uh, this woman that I start the book with and recur to occasionally, uh, who had these kinds of uh, experiences. So what I would say is there are, there are different levels or aspects to this kind of understanding. And uh, so I'm not saying that it's uh, completely disconnected. So, gnosis and neo are not completely disconnected. The and the political narrative is not completely disconnected from Buddhism either. Uh, and we can go into that if you want. It's, it's uh, they are in the book actually. One of many things that are I think challenging for a lot. Of, for, will be challenging for some people in the book because it challenges the conventional ways of understanding things unexpectedly and unexpectedly to me i didn't expect these things
0: <laughs> i think i know what you're which section you're referring to uh, let's go there i'll quote uh, another line from american gnosis you say essentially political gnosis as we see it in this book is expressed as waking up to the lies of the prevailing system this idea this uh, idea of waking up to the lies of the prevailing system, it's not inherently a left or a right idea. And you detail how certain Gnostic bricks, if we take this, this terminology from Kuleanu, kind of express or, or are expressed across the political spectrum. On the right, it's expressed in a certain way which lies are being woken up to and which system has been hiding them or obscuring them. On the left, it's another set of different set of lies that are being woken up to, a different kind of system. Almost inverse sometimes, the two of them. A different sort of system that's been disguising the truth behind the scenes. This sort of political gnosis, this awakening in that sense, you detail that very interestingly on both the left and the right, and Uh, that's very fascinating indeed. And what about its interaction with Buddhism? So, I don't know if if we should say something about this political gnosis before we go further into how this intersects with Buddhism, in particular American Buddhism.
1: Well, there are different ways to look at this, you know, different lenses and angles, because, you know, that's the thing about this book. This is what makes this book so mind-bending, is that there are all of these different elements that are almost certainly unexpected for a lot of people and once you start to delve into uh with me what what you know what's going on here you can't help but feel some shift in how you see things uh that's my own experience in the book and so in writing the book and uh the political dimensions it just depends where you're looking at so I have a chapter For example, on uh, psychedelics and psychedelic gnosis and uh, people who are into psychedelics. uh, A neo gnostic worldview makes some natural sense. Uh, Why? Because you have gnosis, which is provided by the psychedelics, you have the system around you that is opposed to the psychedelics and makes them illegal. Uh, you have uh, so and that's explicit in the in some of the texts that I look at using gnostic text actually gnostic language, so the key here is when neo gnostic language tends to come into play when you are under uh, when the individual the the author the uh, meme creator feels that there is a systemic, a corrupt system that is uh, holding you in its grip and preventing you from knowledge of the truth. That in a nutshell is what uh, you see in psychedelic gnosis, in psychedelic neo nazism rather. And what you see definitely on the right, uh, and I book, discuss in the book, uh, and also in an article that I did, uh, I discuss how people on the right, and here I'm using, I would say essentially the dissident right, although it's broader than the dissident right per se, dissident right is an actual term used by people on the right. Uh, the word dissident, comes; it harks back to, and it is their term, it's not my term, Uh, It harks directly back to being a dissident like Solzhenitsyn in a gulag in the Soviet Union. And that language is, uh, in turn, completely contiguous with a neo-gnostic worldview. And so that's why you find our memes on the right uh, in Gab, for example, Uh, and those memes are uh using themes like archons, so you have a meme for ex- I have a whole collection of memes on my personal website uh and uh, they Arthur and you know they they are what they are I mean they illustrate the themes in the book these are memes I found so deal with it you know that's that's the memes and the memes include Archons in the White House they include you know the red pill uh from the matrix as gnosis they include all kinds of things and that happens at, when I found it I was thinking why is this here you know well this is you know I have to process okay this is weird there's all these Gnostic memes um Neonastic memes on the right why and so I have to come to understand why and it's because the uh Neonastic Uh, themes fit with a dissident right a right that sees itself under assault as being threatened as being persecuted fits very well with gnosticism neo-gnosticism really so that's what i would say about that you know in a in a short version
0: and what about how that same meme or that same brick Expresses itself or might express itself to the left. Of course, there's a spectrum here. You're talking about the dissident right. L before uh, the anecdote about L. That's going almost in the Q and on direction, which is not the di- not synonymous with the dissident right by any by any means. But it's you know it's in that direction <laughs> to the right to the right towards direction. Um, what, but similarly to the left there are there are stages and degrees or, of of gnostic ideas that or, way, or ways in which these gnostic this gnostic brick in particular this political gnosis uh, can be expressed i wonder if you might detail uh, some of those whether or not the analysis that the gnosis is forwarding is correct or not it's the structure of the argument the structure of the analysis which has that gnostic quality to it
1: well i looked for you know examples of memes on the left that you know I looked for things that would really correspond the problem is that that if you think about it uh, the memes neo memes implicit implicitly and really explicitly often uh depend on power a particular kind of power dynamic and so uh when you look at power, like when you look at power dynamics, for example, I live in Michigan uh, right now. The left controls every single element of government in Michigan. Uh, so the left, you know, the Democratic Party controls the Supreme Court, the governorship, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, both houses of the legislature, and so. Uh, in what way could you see, I mean, if you see them as archons, if here I'm talking politically, you see them as archons, you see them as a demiurge, and you're on the left, you've got real cognitive dissonance, you know, I mean, it's just not, it doesn't work, if you see what I'm saying, because the power structure is actually on the left, how would the you neonastic know, memes work, how would the Neo-Gnostic, you know, because it implies that there's a a deluded creator deity, a Truman show happening, uh, like the movie Truman Show, you know, you have uh, these powers, sinister powers in control. Well, if it doesn't work. And so now it does work a little bit in terms of the language. So, and it works if Trump is, if, if so, President Trump is in power, then he's the demiurge or archon figure, and so then you, then it all sort of works, right? And then the language also works because you have woke, and people are to some extent are backing away from the term woke because it's got a certain, it's taken on a certain um, negative quality to some extent uh, in in a lot of people's or at least some people's um, thinking, according to polling, at least um, some statistically there's some polling that would suggest that but woke is awakened right so you're waking up to the reality of racism you're waking up to the reality of of um, uh power structures in society and if president trump is in charge then he's the demiurge or archon figure and so then it works on the left right then the neonastic language works and so it's a totally different analysis, but it can work. It's just that it doesn't fit as well if there's a, a power structure that is actually not, uh, that doesn't fit with it. And so that's, that's what I would say about that. The, the Neonostic memes could work on the left, but they don't for the most part. And that's because of the power structure that's in place.
0: I wonder if the power structure is as important as the perceived locus of power. And what I mean by that is, let's think of some Gnostic memes for the left. Now, once again, I'm not commenting on the accuracy of the analysis of what these memes might be saying, merely in their structure. Right. Um, uh, In terms of... Can it be mapped? Is there a, is there a Gnostic whiff about them, uh, a brick of Gnosticism for, to to follow Kulianu? Well, the demiurge, that system, I think you mentioned it, whiteness, That's, uh this force of colonialism and oppressive uh, tyranny, it's a sort of egregore of demiurge-ish force that keeps you know that enforces its own its own sort of interests at the expense of everybody else or um, patriarchy and its foot soldier misogyny which for centuries has oppressed not only women of course naturally but also men forcing them into various roles and forcing them into various behaviors which are bad for them now I, once again i'm not saying if i agree or disagree with any of that or whether it's right or not just that There's this sort of force out there uh, that is over us, and when we awaken to that, awaken a consciousness to those uh, forces, begin to see them everywhere. You put on the glasses from the those uh, Roddy Piper glasses that you reference from "They Live" in the in the book. You reference those, and suddenly you see it: whiteness everywhere, misogyny everywhere. Does that to you have? the ring of Gnosticism about it and if not or if so why and if not why
1: well it's it's really interesting because you you find uh on the right two different ways of of seeing Gnosticism and this is relevant to what you're saying because what I do in the book is essentially I just explore where do you find neo-gnosticism where do you find these bricks I mean I didn't really I didn't really go to looking at uh video games or you know anime or you know uh, uh cartoons or films you know with an agenda it's just that this is what you find and same in literature this is what you find and where you look for memes this is what you find uh and when you look at the right uh what you see is a kind of double view and this is relevant to your question because on the one hand you find these neo memes right uh which are that there's this power structure in place and it's oppressive and here are these archons and here's the demiurge and so on then you also find paradoxically the exact opposite of that which is the Inquisitorial memes that hate Gnosticism and see it as the source of evil. And so you've got these people wandering around right now who see the source of evil as the source of the left, the left's, uh, 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 tendencies is Gnosticism. And so This goes back to, you you find it uh, voiced by a a scholar by the name of Eric Vogelin. Uh, Eric Vogelin published books about how Gnosticism was the source of communism, it was a source of communist oppression, it was the, so the problem with with communism, where did Marxism come from? Well, it was actually Gnostic, and this is the argument, and so Gnosticism is the sinister force that Makes its way through history, and it keeps. And then, of course, Virgilian himself expanded it to everything occult. Uh, so, occultism, esoteric thought, and so on, is is all of one piece, right? This this is late in life. He says this, and I quote him on this. And then a, f- a follower of his as well, uh, a later follower. And then, and then there's a podcaster going around today saying saying the source of all evil in society really is uh, you got faith and reason and then you got Gnosticism which is the evil source and that's what produces communism and then all the all the genocides and murders and everything else all that comes from from Gnosticism so that view is uh present on the right so, you have this complete bifurcation, self opposed, and then you have, uh, yes, you have this language of woke, uh, you know, or wokeism, or I'm woke, and so on on the left. But then you have the identification of that with, on the right with Gnosticism as a pejorative. So, you you know that has to be brought into this because that exists out there as a as an interpretive structure so then there's the third thing which is what you suggested which is yes there's this uh set of oppressive structures and what we need to do is is uh and they're pre-existing so whiteness or patriarchy or and so all these need to be broken down But then what you don't really find a lot of, at least I haven't found it, uh, is that being explicitly identified with Gnosticism. Why? Well, actually, Marxism has historically and communism have largely been anti-religious. And specifically, of course, religion is the opiate of the people, is the quote, you know, opiate of the masses and that sort of thing but here i'm talking in practice so uh and this is a problem actually in in the buddhist world i think uh in that in the american buddhist world you have on the one hand broadly speaking a lot of identification with actually marxist worldview and yet paradoxically when you look at marxism as it manifested or communism as it manifested in tibet it didn't look good i mean the you know the way that um uh history played out in tibet we all know we can go look at it tibetans in general don't really talk about it very much i mean expatriate tibetans uh but the destruction the cultural destruction of tibet is itself it can be laid directly i mean it's not a hypothetical it can be laid directly at the v of communist china right so that is something that i think needs to be thought through a little more clearly what the relationship is between social justice and the left and communism and then the history of the communist destruction of Tibet those are things to think through and I'm not sure that we've all thought them through there well so I just throw that out there
0: yes that's very interesting indeed the difference between explicitly referencing Gnostic ideas and themes and un, perhaps unknowingly espousing them you write about this in the book directly I'll, I'll quote you here Gnosticism, as filtered through contemporary lenses, recur in new contexts because they so perfectly suit new circumstances. It's not so important whether the creators of films like The Truman Show or The Matrix or Dark City or They Live had ever heard of ancient Gnosticism. Again, what Culliano terms direct transmission is not necessary. Rather, the creators of such films only had to realize in film symbols and metaphors that recapitulate bricks, essential in the Gnostic worldview. And you go on to say later, the phenomena of neo-Gnosticism is essentially the rediscovery of intellectual bricks or elements that correspond to and symbolize aspects of contemporary society, especially those involving censorship, corporate or elite power, oligarchy, control, conspiracies, and a pervasive sense that mainstream reality is falsified or deceptive. Do you see then in some of those characteristics that we've painted of certain left views. Do you see the bricks of Gnosticism in there? You've said you don't see a direct referencing of Gnosticism, which one sees on the right explicitly. And you've mentioned uh, there are books about that. There are podcasters about that. I think I know who you mean. I think that would be a very interesting uh, dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> be very interesting indeed. Um, <laughs> if, if his first name begins with J and the second name is L, I think that would be a very cool dialogue indeed and um <laughs> do you see the bricks of gnosticism uh Kuleanu's bricks in the left or is is that not quite does that not quite fit
1: in general i would say i don't see a lot of it 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 just hasn't been that present uh in the popular language now you see this play out yeah you know, i'll give you an example of this okay how this plays out uh, the Matrix, and I talk about this in the book, the Matrix films uh, became, they produced this, this language, uh, the Matrix films, uh, the language of the red pill. And so the red pill becomes very, wide as a term, becomes very widely disseminated on the right. And people say, have you taken the and it's not just the red pill, it's the white pill later on, it's the white pill and the black pill. And you know, there's all kinds of pills, right. And uh, I can't even keep track of all the pills there are. But but uh, there's a whole pharmacy, I guess, but but the red pill is uh, uh, the main pill, right? Because that's the pill that Neo, you know, Neo, you can take the red pill and uh, go as deep as a rabbit hole or something, right? So, so the red pill, is widespread on the right and here not just the dissident right so once you take the red pill you see the uh what's wrong in society you see the the archons of the fbi and the cia and the nsa and so on and you see the you know the the mr smith's and you see the you see the lies as ella said right that's the way it's used on the right so then then and this highlights the in answer to your question then you see the creators of the matrix films get pissed off that the right is doing this and so they say and the writers say we got to take the memes back from the right we got to take the red pill back and so they create a film which is intended to take the memes back to take the the red pill back from the right explicitly I mean, they said this explicitly but did it work did it work in other words did people suddenly start saying red pill on the left did they start saying oh red pill uh to understanding that president biden is a genius okay is that the red pill no no nobody says that nobody's using the red pill in this way and so it didn't work it didn't work at all and in fact uh there's a lot of anger around this because i remember i remember seeing various people i think one of the one of the trumps uh used the term you know i i red pill and it produced produces extremely acrimonious exchange that i won't go into um uh, where where you don't have the right to use it right but it's out there and this is how things play out on a political level and this fits in this kind of cosmological battle that you see with these different figures in the book uh and here i'm not i'm saying that the languages of a cosmological battle that these these folks are using and and this goes back so example of that is uh, miguel serrano miguel serrano is a uh Latin American author South American author who used essentially neo-gnostic language to create this giant narrative of a cosmic battle it's literally a cosmic battle of light and dark and that language you know I didn't create it I'm not I'm not endorsing it it's just there and so I don't see that quite that same thing happening on the left, and I think the reason for that is that uh, fundamentally what you have, broadly speaking, in terms of of the history of the left, is a hostility to la- religious language and a hostility to religion. That was a point I made in terms of Tibet, and that's why I think... Uh, That hostility to religion extends also to using this kind of language. I can see it happening. I don't exclude it. I say in the book, I wouldn't be surprised to see it. Uh, It's just that I don't see it happening in the same way right now. And I don't see it in these authors that we're looking at, like Serrano, obviously, because Serrano clearly clearly identifies with the right and not the left. So you know, that's just how it is. You know.
0: Yeah, very interesting indeed. And that's your <laughs> key re- refutation then of the, if you want, meme or the idea in some sectors of the right that actually the left is itself gnosticism. Actually, that it's it's rooted in that Marxism, Hegel, etc., etc. It's gnosticism, and um, it's a conspiracy throughout the ages. <laughs> you know, it, it it goes there too. It's a conspiracy throughout the ages, or at least. It is a meme, an idea that re-emerges. It doesn't need, as Cugliano puts it, direct transmission uh, for the idea to, for an idea to resurface. Um, so that's your main refutation then of that, is that the Marxism is so fundamentally, in your view, anti-religious, at least in practice, that it can't quite even become an expression of the religious
1: impulse of neo-gnosticism. It's complicated in the sense, in this sense, that you do have state religion, you have political religion that emerges as pseudo religion, it's not religion, but it's pseudo-religious uh, language, it's pseudo-religious uh, pomp and circumstance, it's taking the place of religion, you could say, so it's, I say it's a little more complicated in that Uh, There is some truth in what Vogelin said. I'm not completely discounting his way of seeing the world in the sense that what Vogelin argued, and you get this in subsequent authors who use it in some cases quite thoughtfully, this idea of creating a second reality, creating that what happens with uh, neo-Nazism is people, and this is a Vogelinian critique, is that, you know, marxists for example create a, a second reality a false reality which they try to impose on this world and this reality and that's the source of all the you know that's not a bad it's it's I'm, it has an interpretive framework it's it's pretty interesting when it's applied for example to terrorism uh, some examples of terrorism there's there's a book on this that that does that very well actually this idea of terrorism emerges from this imposition of a second reality that substitutes for uh, the the actual reality of the world and once you get far enough into your second reality you're willing to kill people you're willing to murder you're willing to blow people up why because you're living in a delusional second reality and so that uh, so far, that you're disconnected from this world. And that, you know, that book has some, that example has some explanatory power. But that analysis, that worldview itself comes from the right. You see what I'm saying? That's the thing. Both examples that I gave come from the right. And m- my view is a—it's complicated because I understand there are these different elements that we're talking about. So I'm not making a blanket, like simple-minded case that uh, there's nothing to the Vogelinian case. Let's say there are elements within the Vogelinian view. They have some explanatory power. However, when it is applied, and here's the problem, when it's applied in a kind of dunderheaded, idiot fashion, where you take uh, the, you take it as almost like a, uh, you take it like a blunderbuss, and you say, everything in the world that I don't like is gnostic and uh paul pot and the khmer rouge in cambodia were gnostic because i don't like because they murdered a lot of people they must have been gnostic right well that is a bridge too far okay why because now we're talking about something that is so disconnected from essentially the entire history of gnosticism neo-gnosticism the different historical connections and threads and all the themes and now we're just applying the term disconnected from everything historically and saying that what I don't like is Gnostic that doesn't work anymore it doesn't work as an argument it just becomes an epithet and an epithet is not an argument so that's a dunderheaded way okay that's that's kind of a dunderhead but here what I'm trying to do is be a little bit uh, a little bit careful in terms of recognizing that there are distinctions to be made. And so, and there are things to be said that that about how Vogelin or others have used the term. So it's it's, I think Vogelin was wrong in the way he made his arguments i think it doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, i don't think marxism is gnostic i don't think it works but still there are elements of what he said that have some value so that that's what i would say
0: something else i found very interesting uh we're talking now about right wing talking about neo gnosticism as it appears often very explicitly in the right wing this is very much in the as you put it, cosmological gnosis, There's awakening to political or systemic archons and demiurges um, in, in all but those names, and sometimes explicitly referred to as those names. But there's also a sense in which that can, in some cases, go into a kind of metaphysical gnosis. I'm thinking here, the the person you give as the prototypical uh, example of this is David Icke. David Icke has this cosmological gnosis aspect to him. I'd love if you could explain why that is. And also he goes beyond, it seems, at times, to this metaphysical gnosis. Cosmological gnosis, hard duality, hard dualism. It's almost one of its defining characteristics. Metaphysical gnosis transcends or goes beyond duality. This is one of it. And so there's, there's somewhat should we say, uncomfortable bedfellows, perhaps, or maybe not. So I wonder how those two things exist and how a figure like, for instance, David Icke, who you talk about in the book, manages to navigate navigate that scope of of different types of of gnosis, if we we can put it like that.
1: Well, he's such an interesting character. And, you know, I was aware of him many years ago. I actually referred to him years ago uh, because he had come come up with this narrative of the uh reptilians that uh he had gotten from a South African uh, figure actually or at least I had a South African uh, that he interviewed that had uh uh kind of a South African shaman figure you could say using the term very loosely who had said that there were these reptile shape-shifting fourth dimensional reptiles that were uh dropping in and out of America you know out of global society and taking power and they take on human form uh and it was so wild this stuff you know so wild and out there and that's my first encounter with him um in video these were in VHS I got the VHS and looked at them and thought wow this is something and then uh years later uh he Ike Uh, continued to develop, he continued to become a more and more uh, charismatic, I would say, uh, popular figure, not only in Britain, not only in the UK, but also in the US, Uh, he's to some extent a global influence, and he undertook a journey, and you see a journey in his work, and I go through that journey of his work, uh, where he goes. And it's very interesting because sequentially, he goes through uh, book by book, you can see to a position uh, that's basically on the right. Uh, It's basically uh, what you see in the dissident right. So he's writing about uh, anti-white, anti-white movement, anti-white politics. Uh he became well known for his opposition to the VAX, to COVID-19 VAX. Uh, he was a very, very uh strong opposition, and that's a position that many people like Ella, this this uh woman that I mentioned in the book, uh discuss in the book. She's emblematic of others that I also have discussed this with and know, who are in this uh kind of, you could say, light worker community. Uh, and they also are anti-vax and see the vaccine as part of a kind of uh, plot or a conspiracy or, uh, you know, and so there's so many different elements to this that it's hard to parse it all out. But there's another element of Ike I wanna mention, and that is his work opens up, and he this is very explicit on his part, into spirituality he is encouraging and awakening to the powers he says the powers that control society but he's also uh, emphasizing waking up in the sense of class you could say classical perennialist spirituality which is you know waking up to meditation to you know these different uh aspects that you could really I think A neutral observer would say this is this is you know you could say i'm not sure new age, but non. Non confessional spirituality of a kind of yoga you know type Uh, it's not explicitly Buddhist it's maybe a little bit Hindu, maybe a little bit Buddhist, but in a kind of neutral way. Uh, a kind of uh non-aligned spirituality that's there in his work so Ike is an example of that but he is by no means the only example uh actually when you look at Stephen Huller and his his life journey away from communism to a spirituality that is broadly on the right you could say uh when you see for example Joel Morwood, I mentioned him he went to China he was given a tour of China, and then he ultimately ended up uh, in a kind of perennialist spirituality that's not that far from David Icke. It's it's somewhat far because it's, I think, much more developed. He's really not political at all. He's, he's uh, much more sp- directly spiritual. But there are common themes here, right? There are common themes, and that is this kind of uh, trajectory that you see in Ike is not that far from the other trajectories that we're talking about. It's not that far. They're they're not identical. I'm not saying they're identical, but I'm saying there are common themes. So does that answer your question?
0: Yes. Yes, it does. And I think you mentioned that this cosmological gnosis this awakening to the sense that there are systems in place or overarching powers of a worldly or maybe otherworldly or maybe supernatural or extraterrestrial nature, right? These are all aspects of ways in which that that meme is expressed. Pretty depressing, actually. So one needs, uh, you talk about this sort of suicidal nihilism, that that sort of a view might very well evoke and if i understood you correctly you're 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 hinting at suggesting that part of ike's transcendental gnosis is is an answer to that question well there has to be something bigger than the archons there has to be There has this deus Otiosis. there has to be you know i mean that's of course that is in gnosticism of course but a gnosticism has been suicidal at times in its history i mean you know Manichaeism and so on, with the perfect ones starving themselves, that sort of thing. So it, 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 that impulse has always been there. Uh, but it's almost as if this transcendental gnosis is, should we say, an antidote to that nihilism? Could that be the case? Is that how it functions, do you think? It, in, not in terms of whether it's right or wrong, but in terms of whether it serves that function within the ecosystem of the, of the worldview.
1: Well, that's what we're, you know, you've captured exactly the approach that's exactly the same approach that I have in the book, which is, you know, I'm just looking at these things and we're, you know, this is what I find and here we are. And so how do we make sense of this? And that's what you uh, suggest there is a real insight. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I actually give some examples of people these are folks on the their redditors people from reddit people from other other sources that i quote who are very depressed because they they go through this political they they come to see this political uh cosmological worldview which is consp- yeah, see the conspiracies they see the the you know it's it's a very negative set of rabbit holes and this is what they say I quote, quote some folks who are, you know, here I've gone down all these rabbit holes and now I feel totally depressed. I feel horrible. I mean, they say this and uh, what do we do? Well, so Ike provides this uh, positive side, which is, you know, meditate, uh, spirituality. So it in some ways, it's a springboard into that, what he's, what he's, endorse you know what he's advocating uh instead of this kind of dead end right or it's a counter to the dead end kind of uh depression and then when you look at the figures that I'm discussing at the end of the book who are gnosis without neo they don't have any of that stuff so you just don't find among those figures you don't find the archons and the demiurge and the conspiracy and the you know that, or if you do it's it's minimal and instead it's primarily the spirituality and transcendence. And that's the emphasis so that's an interesting distinction that you make, and I think you're absolutely right about that.
0: You're talking there about the figures at the end of the book that you mention, Alan Wallace and others. Franklin Merrill Wolfe,
1: Alan yeah. Wallace, um, right. Joel Moorwood, they're, they're, you know, those are figures that I, and Stephen Huller, those are the ones I primarily... Um,
0: right. I wonder if this is another, and this might be a stretch, or it might be a too low resolution. I wonder if this is another area where Gnosticism and Buddhism might overlap. There's a fairly depressing assessment of the state of, of the state of things, samsara, Pretty depressing, really. Uh, round and round it goes. Everything you do gets you deeper in it. That sort of thing. Uh, but there is a way out. You know, there is a problem. We have the solution. And that problem solution paradigm has been expressed differently throughout Buddhism's history. And Inside of Buddhism itself, there's been a great deal of dialogue about that. What exactly is the right solution to suffering? Is it to simply extinguish one's particip- or end one's participation in it, to extinguish oneself? That that earlier sense of enlightenment, or the Mahayana almost light worker approach of to become bodhisattvas and over lifetimes through our light work. Of course, I'm deliberately now mixing the terms. You know, it bring, bring uh, awakening to ourselves, of course, progressively, but also to all, the, all other sentient beings, sort of becoming kind of bodhisattva, light worker in a way. Or, oh, well, actually we can recast this idea of suffering itself. We can discover the uh, Buddha nature underneath it all. The suffering is, it's a layer, it's a covering but within that covering, underneath mud, is that precious material, that golden material, that metaphor is used. For example, in the Gulama, they have those nine different similes of Buddha nature, for example. So there's a reframing, is what I'm attempting to say, of this problem-solution paradigm. Is this perhaps an overlap between Gnosticism and the Buddha?
1: Well, there's a spectrum in looking at these different themes. One of the things that I discuss in the book are light workers and the light worker community on the right. And Ella's kind of worldview of, you know, Trump is a figure of light and the light workers. There's so there's a from that worldview, there's a in that worldview, there is a continuity between light work and conspiracy theory. They're they're not, they're they're close, but it's They're not identical and the light working part then. At the other end moves over into what is essentially transcendence of these different themes and it's aloof from them doesn't much have doesn't have much to do with them there's a transition point between these and that transition point. Here on the spectrum this area is occupied by on once on, in one part secular and then in another part religious uh and so what is that crossover between secular and religious or secular and spiritual well it's it's pretty hard to determine but it's there so there's a there's a uh, is a light worker secular or is a light worker religious right it's hard to say when you talk to a light worker exactly what a light worker is doing. But once you move over into Buddhism and it's explicitly Buddhist, then you, you're you in religious territory and you know it's religion, right? And so then you have people, there are people who uh are identify identify themselves either explicitly or implicitly with a right, who are Buddhists. Buddhism is not a hundred percent left I mean there are I give some examples you know there's there's the daily Lama who's the daily Lama I quote in the in the book at some length um he's a Zen practitioner in Japan who is very much in this transition area here he's clearly Buddhist he's a Buddhist practitioner in Japan in a monastery who is very much identified with the right that's an example and also highly critical of the vaccines and and other uh vaccine and other things uh, or vaccines then then you have and dk dharmaraj uh King. uh another would be um uh, brad warner i mentioned him in the book uh the the dharma squad you know the right-wing dharma squad there um uh so there's a there's a you know there are folks who are in this kind of intervening area and then you have people like morewood who i discuss in the book who's using gnostic terminology joel morewood and is definitely coming from a buddhist perspective largely but does not identify with buddhism and uh yet he does identify with buddhism so he's a perennialist and so and he's using gnostic language to describe himself so what I'm saying is, there's this spectrum here, and where you fit on it, I'm not exact. You know, these different folks fit. I'm not sure, uh, but I have a general idea, and so th- that's why I say it's it's not necessarily the case that uh, it's a complete barrier between neo-nascism and gnosis and claims of gnosis assertions of doses, you could say I would I would say it's a spectrum and the people that we're talking about Bridget they Bridget they have feet in both of these different areas and so does David Ike so that would be what I would say and ultimately yes there's this uh, in Buddhism the idea of of uh samsara as suffering and that is a much clearer way of understanding than I think the neo-gnostic one the neo one does have some diagnostic value in certain situations right whereas Buddhism tends to be much more explicit and clear in its language and in its much much clearer in terms of uh analysis of relationship between samsara and nirvana than some of the other things we've been talking about
0: and there's no demiurge and there's, there's no, no, no archon
1: yeah there's no yeah. there's
0: no conspiracy of samsara per se that element which is really crucial to the Gnostic view you know if, if I'm thinking reflecting on my own question that is uh, quite clearly a difference there's there's no archon there's no demiurge there's no conspiracy of samsara per se it's it's a sort of neutral event actually
1: well there is mara you know there is delusion there's delusion and the powers of delusion and you know in in prophecies there's you know mara as a as a uh in the prophetic tradition mara is is a is a thing right mara is a is a figure it's an entity or given entities you know provisional entity status and there's you know, there are these, uh, you know, there's there's such a profusion of entities in Buddhism, um, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, in terms of spirits of so many different kinds. And some of these have a, a genealogy that goes way back in, in Tibet, actually pre-Buddhist, uh, you know, are certainly contemporary with the immersion, emergence of Buddhism in Tibet uh the the emergence of the the concepts of these different spirits and entities and and so th- those things do exist in Buddhism for sure I mean and and, and uh, I've heard all kinds of stories about some of these different uh uh aspects of Buddhism so so therefore you know yes you're right on a pure philosophical level you're absolutely right you know Madhyamaka uh that's absolutely true when on the practitioner point of view you could say the practicing Yogi local Nagpa kind of uh point of view they're spirits and you got to figure out how to work with them right or or deal with them so there's all these different levels within Buddhism it's not just well we got this pure Madhyamaka philosophical worldview and there's no other elements there are right so it has this complex dimension too yes that's
0: quite (laughs) right quite right absolutely fascinating yeah this has been so cool uh thank you so much american gnosis i can highly recommend it it's it's an incredible read and we've we've touched on various themes and there's a lot more in there
1: you know i really thank you for the chance to discuss it Uh, discuss the book and discuss these different subjects. We barely delved into the weirdness in the book. I mean, we barely touched on some of the weirdness in this book. Uh, And there is much, much more to be jarring to people than just the few things we've talked about. So thank you, Steve. I really appreciate the conversation.
0: I agree. This has been so fascinating. American Gnosis, out soon. I highly recommend it. Professor Arthur Vishloos, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.